All right, 1 John 4, 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. There's a lot there, and I'm not going to preach a sermon on 1 John 4, but let me make sure we're not just reading words on a page, that it, it's, it has some kind of resonance in your heart and mind. The idea that he's communicating is, listen, if Christ came and lived and died to take the wrath of God and satisfy it, so that you no longer abide under the wrath of God, then you know Christ loves you. It's pretty simple. The question at hand is, how can I be loved by Christ? The answer is, by believing that Christ did what the Bible says Christ did. Those who do not believe have no reason to think that the love of Christ abides on them nor do they care. They're indifferent. We've we've seen all through Galatians this picture that God has painted of his desire to be in relationship with his creation, right? Haven't we seen that? If you've been here, if you haven't, I'm sorry. You'll have to take my word for it. God desires to be in relationship with his creation. He desired it, according to John 3, 16, to the point where he sent his only son to die. That's a well-known verse, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that all who believe should not perish but have eternal life. Well, listen to 17. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. So what's the implication there? Who is experiencing and benefiting from the love of Christ? The one who believes. Very simple. So what's the difference between those who are condemned and those who are not? Not the fulfillment of a moral law, but whether or not they have faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's the difference. So you want to know that Jesus loves you? You can find out very simply. Answer this question. Do you believe what the Bible says concerning Christ? If you don't, then you shouldn't know if Jesus loves you, nor, frankly, should it matter to you. If you do, if you do believe what the Bible says concerning Jesus Christ, then it means everything to you that he loves you. So the commandment has no burr. It doesn't stick to those who don't care if they're loved by Christ. You can't, you can't, Love anyone else according to a template that you're indifferent to. Love people this way. I don't care about that way. Well, then you're not going to do it. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Well, the keeping of this commandment results in something. You fulfill the law of Christ, which we saw in John 13, 34, and 35, was 
uh, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you. So what Jesus does is he takes this second great commandment, love your neighbor as yourself, and he actually enhances it, and in so doing, elevates it above the moral law, above the ceremonial law. Morally, we ought to love other people the way we love ourselves. That's the best humanity can do morally. And I liken this to uh, fastening yourself to the mast as the ship sails by the siren's island so that you're not lured in. That's what the moral law does. It puts you under restraint or moves you in the direction of Christ. Does that make sense? Okay. The commandment has no burr if you're lost, but if you are a child of God, loved by Christ, then what happens is you draw from the well of love that Christ has shown to you and you deliver it to other people, which means you love other people in the same way that Jesus loves you, which means you need to stop and think about how Jesus has loved you. So we asked the question last week, how has Jesus loved you? And we went around the room and some people shared how Jesus has loved them. Only the people that loved Jesus shared last week. I'm just joking. The distinction then is unlike the prohibitions on murder, adultery, stealing, or lying, the law of Christ resonates with the believer because I'm drawing from an experience to deliver something to somebody else. I'm not bearing your burdens because I'm afraid of Christ. I'm bearing your burdens because he bore all of my sin. And I want to help you see the love of Christ. If I'm his hands and feet, then I better be doing what he did for me to you. Paul exhorts us to bear one another's burdens partly because this is a defining characteristic of the community of faith. Jesus says in John 13, 35, by this, the world will know that you're my disciples. How? How will they know? Well, in 34, he says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you. So the the implication is if we're doing that in this place with these people, Loving one another as Christ loved us, then out there, they're going to notice. We don't have to gyrate and dance and put on bounce house barbecues. We can if we want to. All we have to do is John 13, 34 and 35, Galatians 6, 2, and the world will take note. Now, the thing I didn't talk about last week is what that might mean. The world taking note is not always a good thing for us temporally can be very difficult. But if the town of Springfield looks at Springfield Baptist Church and sees a community of people who are regularly complaining, fighting, whining, moaning, and hoarding our resources, Springfield will not hear a thing that we have to say about the love of Jesus Christ. So we have to start here. We have to get this right first. We have to love one another in the same way that Jesus loves us. And now we come suddenly and violently to verse 6, which seems to bear absolutely no resemblance to not just the rest of chapter 6 so far, but all of Galatians. Here's what it says. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. 
do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Real quick, just so that we're all on the same page, let me break this down for you in the usual way. If you've heard someone preach Galatians 6 before, this is probably similar to, and I'm not trying to be catty, this is probably similar to what you heard the last time it was preached. Pay your pastor, verse 6. God knows whether you're tithing, verse 7. And if you spend all your money on yourself, you will be rewarded for your selfishness, verse 8. Now, that's not entirely incorrect. I disagree with the spirit of that message. But fundamentally, if you strip it down to its bare bones, that's kind of what's being said. But let me break it down for you more the way I see it. Look at verse 6. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. There are some men gifted to understand and explain the scriptures. These these men are called to be preoccupied with teaching. Now, uh, do we agree that every spirit-filled Christian is capable of opening their own Bible, reading and understanding what's in here? Okay, so let me step out on a dangerous limb because this is something that uh, someone who's starting a cult would say, but I'm going to say it, and I'm not starting a cult, all right? (laughs) I am convinced, after almost 20 years of some kind of ministry of the word, I am convinced that some men are gifted in a peculiar way to explain the scriptures to the benefit of everyone else. That does not mean that my gift usurps or preempts your own spirit-given ability to read and understand the Word. Both things are true. Not all men are called to understand and explain the Scriptures. All are called to understand. The teaching is the gift. Second, So first was, there are some people that should be doing what I'm doing right now. Second, the gift relates to preaching the word. What does verse 6 say? Let the one who is taught the word share all things with the one who teaches. So in 2 Timothy 4, 1 And two, Paul says this, I charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus. He's not charging you, he's charging me and those who teach. Because the epistle is written with specificity to Timothy and those who he is instructing to pastor, to shepherd. I charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Rebuke, reprove, and exhort 
with complete patience and teaching. Now, does that have application to you? Should you be ready? Should you rebuke, reprove, and exhort when operating? Yeah. Are you a parent? Do you have kids? Then that verse is for you. Are you a grandparent? Do you have grandkids? Then those verses are for you. Do you have people that come to you seeking life advice? Then those verses are for you. Whatever you're going to communicate, make sure that it's consistent with that which the gospel teaches. Amen? However, the content of preaching, which is what I do each Sunday, is supposed to be biblical, not personal. The mandate is to preach the word, not my word. A gifted speaker can motivate an audience and captivate an audience with any subject. A gifted preacher actually helps you understand the Bible. Third, the man who is gifted is also to be deemed qualified by the observation of his life. 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. You're free to turn there. I avoid this passage. I've actually glued the pages together in my Bible. (laughs) First Timothy 3, 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, Not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well and with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For someone does not know how to manage his own household. How will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So second was men are gifted to teach the word. Some, not all. Third is giftedness is not the sole qualification for the man who preaches. The one who teaches must be one who, not perfectly, please don't crucify me, must be one who really lives up to the qualifications laid out in Scripture, specifically, I think, in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. We're all in agreement? Fourth, they are not lords of the faith, but men who help our joy in Christ. For this, you need to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, This is proof texting at its finest. (laughs) 2 Corinthians 1, 24. Anytime somebody quotes to you the last verse, an entire chapter of scripture, that's not the passage they've been preaching for the last six months, beware of proof texting. 2 Corinthians 1, 24. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. Philippians 3.2 says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. 
which Paul has talked at length about in Galatians, the party of the circumcision, the legalists. It has been, generally speaking, my observation that men who preach in a legalistic way are not after your joy They are not after your satisfaction, your flourishing in the gospel, or your spiritual vitality. The legalist abusive pastor seeks to control the conduct of his flock by taking authority which does not belong to him and demanding loyalty which is not owed to him. Now they're fairly easy to spot if you compare their lives to the qualifications that we just read in 1 Timothy 7. I go lightly here because it would not take much for the Lord to remove the restraints of grace and my wife, my son, or my daughters to become afflicted with some kind of madness that I can't manage pastorally. Or for my periodic failure as a husband and a father to manifest itself in my family in such a way that my wife, my son, or my daughters make shipwreck of their faith and their lives, and you all see it. And then we have to play this game where we sit around trying to figure out, is he disqualified or is that just out of his control? So I go lightly. But I can tell you, legalistic pastors, those who want to mutilate the flesh, if you compare their lives to the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3, It's not just their families that are a train wreck. There's more to it than that. In 2 Timothy 2, 24, Paul says the Lord's servant, that's me in this case. It's all of you generally, but it's me specifically as pastor, teacher, preacher, elder, overseer. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Listen, If a pastor's corrections, whether privately or publicly from the pulpit, lack gentleness, he is not a pastor, he is a wolf, and his aim is certainly not to point you to Christ, whatever his words. Gentleness cannot be subtracted from the voice and the words and the body language and the timbre of the preaching. It does not mean it's always going to make you feel good. A preacher given to angry, pouty, self-interested ways usually doesn't have a healthy marriage, 
His kids are normally somehow wild, whether you know it or not, and his violent, immature nature is the cause. I go lightly because I'm not trying to invite sifting. Please don't hear me standing up here saying, I've got it all figured out. And you should listen to me because my wife and kids are perfect because I've managed them perfectly. That, that is not what I mean. It's not what I mean. A preacher given to preaching in an angry, pouty, self-interested way usually doesn't have a healthy marriage. His kids are normally somehow wild and his violent, immature nature is the cause. Now listen, it doesn't matter how gifted he is Flee, run away as fast as your legs can take you, run away. I am not a prosperity preacher. I'm not gonna stand up here and promise you that if you just believe in Jesus, you'll be happy all the time. But I am for your joy. I'm for that. And I'm sorry if I can't read this whole thing and, and, and conclude that really what's going on is God is still pretty angry with you, but tolerating you for Jesus' sake because he knows a future version of you will be more enjoyable than the current one. That's not the gospel. God has breathed life into dead sinners through his Holy Spirit. You see it when Jesus calls Lazarus from the tomb in John 11. It's a picture of what God is doing when he calls sinners to life. Prior to that, we're dead in our sins and transgressions. He calls us to life. He declares that we're righteous because of the work of Jesus Christ, which deals with the wrath of God. He's a propitiation for our sins. The guilt and the stain and the filth of our sins is dealt with by Jesus Christ so that we can be brought into relationship with the perfect creator. He justifies us. He calls us righteous. He views us wrapped in the righteousness of Christ. And listen to me, his adoration, his affection, his enjoyment of you is the same as his adoration and affection and enjoyment of Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord. I am for your joy. Is life going to hurt? Yes. Are you going to get kicked in the teeth and wonder if God has forgotten about you sometimes? Yes. What did Job do wrong? I mean, prior to all of the affliction... Nothing. In the midst of trying to figure it out, he does some things wrong. So can we expect to experience the same thing? Yes. I know that, 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 that to whatever degree I can make the gospel more uh, tangible to you, more, more reachable, you will enjoy vitality in your relationship with Jesus Christ to a greater degree. That's what I think. And that's what I think my job is. Not to stand up here and lambast you and shame you and then shun you when you don't adjust fast enough. Let's review. Not all men are called to do this, period. 
That's one. Two, the gift relates to the preaching of the word, the Bible. Three, the man who is gifted is also to be qualified by the observation of his life. Fourth, men who teach are not lords of the faith, but servants for your joy in Christ. Galatians 6, 6. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches the word. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. So it is the duty of those who are taught It is the duty and responsibility of those who are taught to support those who teach by communicating to them in all good things. Now that's a lot of fancy speech. I'm going to put it this way. To whatever degree a man is sowing to others spiritual things, he should not refuse to receive practical provisions. Do you like how I twisted that a little bit? (laughs) It takes time to prepare to teach, and this means time away from other matters. Now, this would be harder to preach, I'll be honest with you. And I had to, like, I got a little self-righteous while I was preparing this. This would be harder to preach if I did this full time. Because guys that do this full time have to give an account for 40 hours a week. I don't. I don't. You want to know where I am 45, 50 hours a week? 2201 Farnham Street, and that's not where I live. I have a job. 2 Timothy 2, 2. What you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust of faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It takes time to prepare to teach, and that means time away from other matters. So, you can help. You can participate in the ministry of the Word by supplying financially or communicating encouragement so that I'm able to do this part of the job in a way that benefits your soul. This, like all exhortations, must go both ways. If I get up here and I ramble about politics, abortion, social justice, or whatever is in the headlines, what's being indicated? Well, what's being indicated is that I'm not being diligent to study the word in order to sow spiritual seeds in you. That's what's being indicated. Should you then contribute to my needs? If I stand up here Sunday after Sunday and demonstrate that I've taken the time to study and understand the scriptures, even, listen, even if you disagree with my application, 
or you don't particularly agree with some point of interpretation. If I stand up here and demonstrate that I've taken the time to study and understand, the evidence is there that I'm diligent, right? Come on. Thank you, Carrie. It's as far back as I seem to be able to reach this morning. So if the evidence is there that the teacher, well, let's take me out of it because there will be other men who fill this pulpit. If the evidence is there that the teacher is diligent, should you then contribute to their needs? Again, I can't, it's one, two, I can't get past the fourth row here. I'll keep trying. If I sow spiritual things in you, it is not unreasonable or evil or selfish or conniving for me to reap practical things from you. Second Timothy, this isn't me. This is the word of God, right? Second Timothy 2, 6. Oh, you guys are going to love this. This will be your favorite part of this message, I promise you. Because like everything else, I'm going to turn it on its head. 2 Timothy 2, 6, it's the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Thinking over what I say, the Lord will give you understanding in everything. So there's a word in verse 6 there. Kupiao in the Greek. You don't care, and you've already forgotten how to pronounce it. But I've demonstrated my diligence by sharing that Greek with you. The word means to labor with wearisome effort. Let me read the verse again. You might have missed it. It's the hardworking farmer, kupiao, the hardworking farmer, who ought to have the first share of the crops. To labor with wearisome effort. Now, the lazy farmer who, like, you know, from his porch, throws some seed out and it bounces along the hardened surface of the soil is the teacher who takes no pains to prepare his lessons. That farmer will get no crop and that teacher should get no share from his students. First Timothy five seventeen: the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the labor, <clears throat> laborer is worthy of his wages. And again, the word in the Greek is the same. Kupiao, hard working. And the implication is the same. From the field, the teacher tends, he ought to receive provision. <laughs> if you sow practical things, listen, Tune back in. We're almost done. If you sow practical things from which I receive provision, meaning if you give money to the church from which I get part of my pay, you should be reaping spiritual things from my provision. If I sow spiritual things from which you receive spiritual provision... I should reap practical things from you. Simply put, if you do not contribute, your teachers cannot benefit. That makes sense. 
So then the burning question in my mind, and it should be the burning question in your mind, is what does all of this have to do, or how does all of this relate with what we've seen so far in Galatians? Why does Paul go here? Well, I think it's a number of things. Um, Do we think there were no good teachers in Galatia? I think there were good teachers in Galatia. I think that they had been usurped and moved aside by the legalists. So Paul's tending a practical problem. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Well, what did we say? That the teaching is preoccupied with the word. So his idea is, look, churches in Galatia, I want you to support the men who are teaching and preoccupied with the gospel and not those who are preoccupied with laws and ceremonies and rites of passage. That's how it applies. To us, here's how it applies. I've got three thoughts. And each of those three has like seven or eight. But three main thoughts, right? You have a group of men here who are working diligently to lead this church into vitality and gospel flourishing. I'm the one right now who stands up, generally speaking, on Sunday and talks. So it's my voice with which you're most familiar But guess who can't do this if he's not surrounded by people doing what they're doing on the eldership team? Me. I can't do this and worry about AC and worry about setting up finances and worry about getting our tax ID number and worry about finding a place for us to meet when we outgrow this space and worry about visiting Frank and Trish when they're in the hospital and worry about how the chairs are straightened, whether the church is clean, who should bring food, who's going to make coffee. Like, I can't, I can't. There's not enough hours. So if I'm worrying about all that, I'm not worrying about this. So yeah. I get to stand up here and teach and everybody gets to, oh my, oh, that was such a blessing. Thank you. And I, I appreciate that. But if the rest of these things aren't getting done, you will be thoroughly disinterested in what I have to say on Sunday morning. I've already had one person report that someone wasn't going to come back until the air conditioning was fixed. Really? I think they were joking. <laughs> but that got taken care of and not by me. I had almost nothing to do with fixing the air condition. There's Matt, there's Rick, there's Lee, and there's Cecil right now. Those are your elders alongside me. Who, I mean, I, among those men, I would count myself as least. Because this is the easiest thing in the world for me to do. You might watch somebody preach and go, man, I don't, I don't know how they could do That's amazing. I don't know how they could do that. Well, look, I stunk at it at first, and sometimes I still do. But once you do it enough, it becomes second nature. It's not all that hard. And then you get to enjoy the benefits of doing this, which is everybody appreciates you. Well, there's more than one of me leading this church. And all five of these men work diligently through prayer, study of the word, and endless hours of discussion. And me constantly going, hey, what about this? And then it's their problem, not mine anymore. (laughs) 
Have you benefited from our labor? Have you participated in our labor? Whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Maybe you haven't benefited because you haven't participated. How do you participate? Well, you have to pay attention. That's my favorite one because I'm the one that's teaching. You have to pay attention. And second, you have to give generously to the church. Forget I said that. Uh, Third, you didn't know we'd already been through two of the three, did you? Third, what are you reaping? So it's been almost a year. We're like a month away from one year from uh, us joining our fellowships together here, right? So if you just hit the rewind button in your head, Think about these questions. Do you know Jesus better now than you did a year ago? Are you more interested in the things of God now? Do you have a better understanding? This is where I'm going to get personal. All right. Do you have a better understanding of the gospel as a result of that Murals of Mercy series that I started with last September? What is the gospel? Do you remember the four wells that we go to to tend what's broken? You may not remember what they are, but you remember me talking about that. You may not remember me talking about that, but do you remember me talking? (laughs) You may not remember me talking, but do you remember me? (laughs) Do you have a better understanding of the minor prophet Haggai? Do you have a better grasp on Galatians? I hope so, because every sermon represents around 10 hours of nothing but study. Every one. And I don't say that so you'll be impressed. I say it because I want you to know that my conscience is clear. I'm not being lazy with this. Are you more preoccupied with Jesus than you used to be? Do you think about him more? Are you more interested in fellowship than you used to be? Do you find yourself at least moved in the direction of wanting to share the gospel more than you used to? Are you interested in seeing God glorified? Or, said a different way, do you find that you are drawing to Christ? Do you think that we are developing in community? Do you think that we will deploy to culture? Will we display the glory of God? If not, I can confidently say that it isn't because I haven't been diligent preparing to preach and teach. It is perhaps that you have not been participating. That's brave, huh? If you are, I can confidently say that my diligence is not the first cause. Jesus draws you to himself. The Holy Spirit weaves the bonds in this community. God commands all through scripture that we deploy to the culture. And he has attached his own glory to your salvation. I'm not the first cause of you doing those things. I'm probably not even the second or the third. But I'm happy to participate 
and putting us on mission. I'm happy to participate in the gospel and my prayer is that you'll be happy to participate too. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.